Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You'll also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode. We think this is going to be a special one because we have visiting with us Hall of Fame boxing announcer Steve Farhood, my colleague at Showtime. I will also have what I think is a pretty interesting flashback for you. And, of course, we have some of your questions to answer as well. To help me uh, work my way through this podcast, my friend, colleague, Trip Mitchell. Trip, how are you? I am great. And when you and Steve were talking the other day during the interview, we were all joking about basketball. Yes. And Steve, I guess, is a heck of a good player. Yeah. And you were a thug on the court, and that's who we met. <laughs> and it's almost 30 years ago, we got on the same basketball team. Yes. And you were in your ESPN days, so you were on top of the world. And we had a team that had no height. Yes. But we were slow, too. <laughs> there was that, yeah. And But yet we had a great time. So what happened is – we were trying to guilt you into getting us ESPN swag, and we kept asking, and you never did. So I went out and bought eight white baseball caps <laughs> and a magic marker and put ESPN on them, and we wore them for warm-ups. And the next week, you came with a ton of swag. I did. You know, once I saw that, I said, you know what, I I'm, I'm really feeling guilty. And with the last name Bernstein, guilt comes with the package, right? And so I said, you know what, uh, shame on me. I better – so I, I made a concerted effort. And I did, I did get us some uh, ESPN hat and other stuff, and, uh, uh, and I was able to come through. So that was, my, that was my shining moment on your behalf. We had fun playing basketball together, and we did have one great team. That team wasn't so good, but then we had another team. Remember, we recruited this six-foot, eight-inch center who was fantastic. He could shoot. You were ass. Yeah. Al would show up to the gym with a special little satchel, and I think it had money in it. Because you would disappear into the back gym with this guy yes. after the games. You were in charge of recruiting. You were out at the Hard Rock most nights after UNLV games. Yes, I was. You know what? I thought of myself as – I said to myself, what would a normal college recruiter do if he was looking for talent? And then I said, oh, I'll just spend some money. And that was <laughs> – I said, that's, that's the answer. So we that's had fun. We had fun playing here, here in Las Vegas, that's for sure. Well, a lot of great stuff coming up. We've got a potential heavyweight fights. We, I mean, there are, all of a sudden, the world has blown up in terms of boxing, and it couldn't be a better time. Yeah, uh, there are a number of fights now starting to take shape um, as we move ahead into the final you know, portion of the year, and especially the final quarter of the year. You know, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, matches take shape. And two of them that are – extremely big have had have found now tentative dates uh that they're hoping that they can they can do one uh the fight between Vasily Lomachenko uh and um Teofimo Lopez two lightweight champions uh who Lomachenko of course thought of by many as perhaps the best pound for pound fighter in the world today and Teofimo Lopez who won the IBF title in a a uh, stunning ups, uh, not upset, but a stunning um, knockout win uh, very early in the fight against Richard Comey. Uh, and that fight is now tentatively set for October 3rd. Now, this is the third date it has had. It had a date before the pandemic, then it was rescheduled at a time when they thought they could get it done, even, uh, even with the pandemic. And then now, finally, uh, it's, it's for October 3rd. This is a, a match that they're hoping they can find a location where they can get maybe 2,000 or 2,500 people to socially distance and be at the fight. Um, they'd like some kind of crowd there. It's likely now going to be a pay-per-view match. And it's one that I think everybody's interested in seeing. Teofimo Lopez, a powerful young fighter. In, and, and Lomachenko, of course, uh, you know, one of the most skilled fighters we've seen in a long time in the sport of boxing. And they're in a division that is so exciting, a division that has Gervonta Davis in it, Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, um, and other excellent fighters as well. So 
we're all keeping our fingers crossed that on October 3rd, those two men can step in the ring. And then, uh, though it hasn't been officially announced as a potential date, it is being spoken about as the probable date. And that is uh, the date of December 19th for the uh, third fight between uh, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Bob Arum, who promotes uh, Fury, has suggested that date. The Wilder side, of course, uh, will have something to say about it as well. And Frank Warren, the promoter, the British promoter of Fury, uh, isn't confirming the 19th, but, but people are talking about December 19th. And the idea is that that fight would be at Allegiant Stadium uh, here in Las Vegas, uh, again, with people social distancing and their hope there that in that very huge uh, football arena, uh, stadium, it's an indoor uh, football stadium, that they could find a way to socially distance to have maybe 20,000 people in there. We'll see if that's feasible. And of course, all of that is dependent on how things go with the, um, with the coronavirus. At, so at you mentioned point. Allegiant Stadium. That's going to be kind of an interesting player because in the past, Jerry Jones would try to get fights in Dallas at his, the Cowboy yes. Stadium. And we talked about fights over in the UK. But now having a sixty to 70,000 seat stadium in Las Vegas is going to change the dynamic. A hundred percent, Trip. You're absolutely right. Um, or as Ed McMahon would say, you are correct, sir. Uh, and, and, and it is true because, you know, Las Vegas hasn't had that size of an indoor venue. There are only so much, so much you can do outdoors. And, and, uh, there are many times when Las Vegas, uh, the climate isn't conducive to outdoor fights, but th that stadium will, when you have a boxing match, oftentimes, uh, let's just say an example is somebody like Canelo Alvarez, uh, who could put that many people in the, in the stands or like this Wilder Fury fight under normal circumstances, you might be able to get 30 or 40,000 people to the Wilder Fury fight uh, if you priced it correctly in a football stadium. But of course, we don't, that probably isn't safe right now. But yes, as time moves on and we get back to normalcy, that stadium is going to be important. Uh, and now, oh, go ahead. I've got a quick question for you. We noticed that a lot of fights are in the May kind of period, May, early June, and then a lot in November. And that, what are, why are fights, bigger fights done at just a, a smaller windows during the, during the year? Or is, am I mistaken on that? You know, I think they, they well, they're oftentimes, of course, they shoot for a lot of big fights are in May because of, partially because of um, Cinco de Mayo. Uh, and, and, and it's a good time in, in, like in places like Vegas, weather is okay. And, and, and then later in the year, you often have the big fights again. I think a lot of times in the dead of summer, you aren't going to see a big fight for all the obvious reasons. Um, but I don't know if there's a slot where you have to put the big fights in. They tend to gravitate a little bit toward those times, but I don't think it's uh, cast in stone. And, uh, and a lot of it, and, and so much of it, of course, depends on availability of of venues and uh, and and also the competition you're facing in terms of other sports activities as well. So some of that, you know, has to do with with it as well. But uh, uh, we'll see how those those fights we talked about if they can uh, stick with the dates they have and give us in the last quarter of the year something really good. And we talked about uh, an event indoors at the uh, uh, Allegiant Stadium, and I I talked about how. Sometimes weather conditions can have an impact on fights and everything surrounding the fights. And in fact, that is the topic of my flashback. For this flashback, I go back to December 7th, 1989, when uh, Roberto Duran was fighting Sugar Ray Leonard for the third time. It was the opening of the Mirage in Las Vegas. And this bout was one of the important events chronicling that opening and highlighting the opening of that uh, casino property. It was outdoors. Uh, they created an outdoor arena, much like the ones that had been created at Caesars Palace uh, in the year, and in the Hilton in years leading up to that. And 
I was hosting the pay-per-view along with Jim Hill, broadcaster from Los Angeles, famous broadcaster from that area. And we, they built for us a little tower, a little wooden tower that went up about, it was about, I don't know, 35, 40 feet from the ground. And the day of, we were up there in that tower and it, we were rehearsing and it was the day of the fight. And already earlier in the day, uh, desert winds had kicked up to uh, levels that made them worried about even holding the fight. Oh, so now here, wow. here we were at about 4 p.m. in the afternoon rehearsing for the pay-per-view broadcast. And the winds came back again. <laughs> and at a certain point, Jim Hill looked at me and he said, are we swaying? And I said, <laughs> we are swaying. <laughs> the tower that they had built for us was literally swaying back and forth. And we, of course, got concerned. And uh, 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 we said to the producer, we said, we're, we're not sure this is safe. And of course, as any good TV producer will say, he said, oh, no, you're fine. We just need <laughs> a, a couple more minutes of rehearsal and we'll be fine. So as the the winds kept picking up and we kept swaying back and forth. Uh, the gentleman that was our stage manager uttered this famous uh, phrase. He said, you know, he said, if we're going to die up here, he said, at least we're going to die doing a Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard fight, <laughs> which, you know, had some logic to it, I guess. In any case, finally, Jim Hill and I looked at each other and we said, no, I think we're done up here. And we told the producer, we're coming down. We came down. And when we came down and looked up at that tower, it was literally going back and forth like five, six, seven feet at a time. We were very happy about our decision. And they found us a site that was a lot safer to do the hosting from. Well, Al, the good news is if there is a heaven, you won't have to be burdened by seeing a lot of TV producers there because they ain't going to be there. <laughs> I don't think so. Yes, we, they, he was, let's just say he was a little more concerned with his product than he was <laughs> our safety at that juncture. So. <laughs> and the man I'm going to introduce here in just a moment or two, uh, or right now, I should say, uh, is someone who has experienced a lot of things in the, uh, in the world of broadcasting. And uh, uh, I'm, every level. Uh, he is a Hall of Fame boxing announcer, uh, a, a former uh, newspaper, uh, a magazine editor, and great writer, uh, and he's a colleague of mine at Showtime. Uh, he is the voice of Showbox, and also works with us on our Showtime Championship Series, and that is the great Steve Farhood. And we had a chance to visit with him, and it was delightful. Here it is. Steve, it is a delight uh, to have you on the show and um, uh, to get a chance to uh, look at some great memories and also talk a little bit about uh, boxing as it moves forward. Uh, one of the things that I've been meaning to ask you is, was, I, was your first TV experience with me on uh, that old Ringside Report show on Showtime, was that the first time you had done television? The Ringside Reports was ESPN, right, I believe? Yeah, on ESPN. They, that was among the earliest shows I ever did. I, I started on a local level shows that were, you know, New York cable television shows, really low level and low uh, exposure. So I did a few of those. And then I did Tuesday Night at the Trop in Atlantic City for Don Elder. Oh, right. I think that might have been before you and I did the ESPN stuff together. But I also sat in as an analyst or I think it was three ESPN shows. One oh, with Bob right. Lee, one with Sam Smith, and one, one was with, with me. I'm not sure who the third one, and one with you. Yeah. One was maybe with me when I did play-by-play -play with you, I remember that. That was like early 80s? Yeah, yeah, in the early, mid-80s or something. And you were just, for people that don't know, uh, Steve was the, uh, uh, had an extensive career already as a boxing journalist in uh, writing for a number of magazines and Boxing Illustrated included, where I worked for you writing a column uh, in Boxing Illustrated. So you were, you were, you were, you were a grossly, tough taskmaster. You were grossly underpaid, Al. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably was grossly underpaid, but nothing never changed, right? 
<laughs> what, yeah, what changes? It was a lot of fun, though, that's for sure. And you were, uh, you were not too tough a taskmaster. You didn't, you didn't kill me on the editing. You're, or the, you're uh, an excellent writer. I mean, a lot of people who only know you from television, allow me to blow your horn for a minute here. The people who only know you from television, which is a lot of people, don't understand that your background is in journalism and you were the managing editor of the paper and everything. I mean, you're much like Barry. Most people don't know Barry Tompkins yeah. is an excellent writer and has a history as a writer. So I think that helps, ultimately helps us make the transition to TV if you do have the, the writing background. It's funny, that was gonna be one of the questions I asked you here shortly, so you've led into it. Um, when you got onto television uh, after having it, and I do agree with you that it, it's an aid uh, to broadcasting, a big aid, because you're used to storytelling, you're used to doing those kinds of things. What was the hardest part for you, or was there anything uh, that, making that transition that you had to constantly remind yourself of or be cognizant of? The hardest part for me, Al, was that I am not a ham at all. I was the one in fourth grade when the teacher would say, okay, who wants to be in the play? I would hide in the back of the room. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never, you know, so, yeah. so, so the, the written journalism part of everything was great for me because you, you're, it's not about you, you're in the background, you don't have to express yourself publicly. Um, so that was the hardest part, and that remains to this day. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a ham. I don't look for the spotlight. I'm a little uncomfortable with it. But if you're going to be on television talking, you kind of have to get used to that. So that was, that was the hardest part for me. Really, the writing is more natural for me. The TV was kind of fabricated. I believe, actually, that that's part of your charm uh, as a broadcaster because you are, because you don't, you're not trying to be a showman. You're trying to be... Uh, you are very funny. You have a great sense of humor on, on the shows you do, and that comes through. But you are a person just talking to another person. And you and I both believe that's the style of broadcasting that we think is most effective. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the reason you've been so successful for so long is you're yourself on TV. If you weren't yourself, people would know and people would sense it. I think people would sense it in, after three shows, much less 40 years. Yeah. And, and I think it's the same with me. If it's not good enough, if it's not appealing enough, then fine, take me off. Yeah. But you have to be what you are. Otherwise, it's just going to look fake. That camera doesn't lie. I agree. And also, and I, I think you'd agree, Al, that with this nose, this receding hairline, and this Brooklyn accent, I was a natural. <laughs> you, you know what? You were perfect for TV. There was The two of you are a perfect match. It's clear. It's inevitable. Yeah, wasn't that? How could it be stopped? There's no way that they could stop that transition <laughs> from happening. So you did transition into television, and one of the uh, one of the things that you did before you did the showbox, before you got with ESPN, was you covered the fights with Nick Charles, uh, the CNN on CNN, right. and you and he were a terrific team uh, that would later both of you move on to do the showbox fights. Those early times of covering with, uh, with, uh, with Nick, that had to be fun for you. Oh, that was tremendous. You know, CNN obviously had a big name, not necessarily in sports so much. Right. But CNN uh, were three letters that resonated to people. Yes. And I have been so blessed to work with you for so many years, to work with Nick, who was the ultimate pro, and to work with Barry. Yeah. I mean, how lucky was I? The, the, you, are, you are three people that are... are giants in the television field and i'm just along for the ride yeah so no, working with nick, <laughs> no i mean that you know i mean that and yeah. working with nick was fantastic because we yeah. developed a very quick friendship and then when the showbox job started in 2001 he was a quick hire and they had trouble finding an analyst they, they tried they talked to some fighters ex-fighters didn't work so i was sort of almost the last resort and i have a feeling although he never admitted it that nick had something to do with bringing me aboard to showtime as well and, well, uh, it was a match made in heaven, and you, uh, when the Showbox series started, of course, you and Nick did it for many years. Um, that series, to me, feel, and I will say this, I've said it many times, and I'll, I'll say it to you here, your imprint on the Showbox series is just so important because you understand what it, what it takes to cover young boxers who are on the cusp of uh, stardom and tell their story 
and treat their fights with the respect and, and uh, that they deserve. And I don't think there's anybody that I know who could have put an imprint on that series the way you have. Uh, and uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think you really viewed this as a, a way for you to, which is what the series is, give these fighters this respect. Yeah, they, they deserve it. You know, they're also accepting and they're also appreciative because they're not big stars. They're at fighters. We don't have to name who they are. When you and I walk into a fighter meeting for Showtime Championship Boxing, don't want to be there. And some of the time, we don't want to be there. <laughs> but, and you know who I'm talking about. But there are a few, yeah. We won't name, mention any names. We don't have to name names. But when a fighter is sort of making his initial exposure on national television, he's very mm -hmm. appreciative of what we do for them. And, you know, I, I like to think of us as sort of the American idol of boxing. Wow. You know, we can help make these guys. And then when you add the tremendous success, all, all credited to Gordon Hall, our executive producer, when you add the success that basically on average we have one future champion every three or four shows, well, you never know who you're watching. You could be watching the next Tim Bradley, the next Andre Ward, the next whoever. And that makes it very exciting because these guys, uh, again, thanks to Gordon, have had big futures. And we just, we're just along for the ride to tell their story. How many, about how many, maybe you know the exact number, how many champions have uh, matriculated, have started on Showbox and become world champions? It's, I believe it's 81 right now. That's a lot of, that's a lot of Which is a lot, because we've had, I don't know how many shows, 400 something shows. So it's, it's about one every three or four shows in, in the 20 years of the show. It's a good way to put it. That's, that's intriguing. And if you are the American Idol of, um, of boxing, you work now, of course, with Barry Tompkins and Raul Marquez, which one of you would be Simon Cowell? I guess that would have to be me. Raul's too nice a guy. Yeah, he is too nice. Yeah. Barry's carrying the load and, you know, pointing us in the right direction. So I guess it would be me, although my personality is certainly not like Simon Cowell. You're not quite Simon, but you no, would have not to. Quite, not quite as critical, but sometimes you have to be critical, as you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you always do it in a respectful way, that's for sure. The Showbox series has um, produced... Uh, you know, you guys have, have been on the air for now, how many years now? This will be our 20th year coming up. 20th year coming up, which is pretty extraordinary. And you've celebrated milestones of how many shows uh, and, and all the rest. And it has been, I think, a singular series in the sense that people really know what they're going to get. They, they understand uh, who they're going to see and, uh, and, and almost always. I think we can say this with, with, with uh, secure feeling. Almost always, if you tune into a Showbox show, you're going to get one of those couple of fights or three fights is going to be a barn burner. Uh, and, and I think that probably makes you want to show up for those fights. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the, the consistency of Showbox is that the prospects, whether they're future world champions or guys we're never going to hear of again, the, the, the consistency is that they're facing their toughest opposition to date, for the most part. There are exceptions. We've also even had world title yeah. fights on Showbox. Occasionally, we, we go away from the script but, or the formula. But uh, for the most part, they're going to be tested as they've never been tested before. And that's the consistency. And, you know, some people say that, that imitation is a sincerest form of flattery. To me, maybe the sincerest form of flattery is that no one's really tried to copy Showbox. Yeah. No one's ever done a series quite like it. And again, I give all that credit to Gordon Hall because he's matched fighters tough, and he's done it with a long, long, long list of promoters, where Showtime Championship Boxing was for many years Don King, and now more PBC-oriented with some exceptions. But Showtime has opened itself up to multiple uh, promoters, and that's increase the uh, our ability to, to showcase more future champions. Now, one of the joys is that we get to, to while you do all the Showbox shows, uh, you, they share you with us on the other series on, uh, notice I referred to it as the other series on Yeah, the, the, the B-side. Yeah. You know, we're just there to, to, to warm up the act for you guys. On Showtime Championship Boxing, and you uh, work with us in terms of uh, 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 providing material and using your great skills at informational work, plus doing features on the show and doing the scoring of the fights. And I, I, for a long time, I scored fights and wanted to kill myself because, it's, <laughs> you know, when you're announcing a fight and you're scoring it, it's really hard. And um, I was thrilled when uh, 
when you came on to do the scoring. And I know no one has ever uh, been upset with any of your scorecards, oh, correct? Oh, never, never. No, no way. But, but first of all, Al, in terms of the assignment of scoring fights, I feel for you because when I do Showbox, in round one, we do a couple of things. They right. promote the producers in my ear. There are a lot of times after round one of a Showbox fight, I look at Barry and I, I have no idea who won the round. Absolutely. Yet I have to put something down on paper. So I know what you mean. What, what scoring for Showtime Championship Boxing has taught me, if there's one thing, it's that the number one primary skill set that's necessary to score a fight well is not knowing boxing. It's not being impartial. It's focus. Yeah. You really have to focus. And I'm listening to you and you know, I'm not, I'm a big boy. I can make up my own mind, but of course right. what you and Paulie and, and Mo say can affect me. But for the most part, I have to make up my own mind and right. I am focused on that, on that action for that three minutes. And that's the only way you can properly score a fight. Yeah. And, and all, all kidding aside, while you hear us, you're probably tuning out a lot of what we say because you, we're picking out little parts of the rounds to talk about. And let's say we talk about what one guy's doing three times and the other guy only once. That doesn't mean the, one, the guy that we talked about one good thing he did didn't win a round. You're there to, to, to look at the, focus on that, on that thing. And I, the fight, and I, I think you're right. Um, focus is where I think a lot of times judging falls short because they're somehow, even though that's the only thing they're doing, you know, they're, they're not focusing as well as they might. Yeah. And, and, and in fairness to them, especially the, the higher level judges, yeah. there is a lot more subjectivity in scoring than people want to admit. You know, when you get a big fight and there's a controversial decision, well, fans mm. like to yell fix, which this isn't 1953 anymore, mm. you know? Um, but I, I think that the subjectivity in scoring, partially because of where you're seated, partially about you, you may have certain styles that you subconsciously prefer. Whatever the case is, there's a lot more subjectivity in scoring that people want to admit. And that's why we get, that's why the top judges, the ones, the Jerry Ross and the Dave Moretti's and the ones you and I respect, that's why they can be very different from each other at times. Good point. Boxing is back uh, on, a, on, on some level. Uh, top Rank Boxing has done a whole bunch of shows. And, you know, uh, this is my opinion. And uh, I, I don't know if you share it. I'd be curious to get yours. While some of the results of what they've done have been uneven, there have been some good fights. There was, there have been, there was just an upset recently, and there's been a couple upsets. And I think that they took the slings and arrows for every other platform and, uh, uh, and promoter and they had to, they're working through a lot of the difficulties. So I kind of give them kudos for getting out there and doing it. I'm with you, Al, totally. I, you know, there was criticism of some of the mismatches in, in the very beginning. And I said, give these guys a break. You know, they're, they're doing groundbreaking work here. You know, and, and in terms of protocol and everything, Fox and Showtime and everybody else that does boxing on TV, the zone on streaming, everybody's going to learn from what these guys, right. doing, what they put in place. And we should all be grateful for that because you know, the, the whole virus is a moving target. Yeah. The, the, the status of it a month ago is not necessarily the same as now, nor is the geography of it. So it's a moving target, but I give them credit. They seem to be, at least in terms of theoretically doing the right thing in, in terms of, you know, getting, getting through this. And as far as the fights, yeah, they have not been the highest level. I understand that, but I don't think they've promoted them as being the highest level. This isn't right. Wilder Fury. This is, this is two levels below that. Yeah, and they got boxing back, and some of the the fights have been good. And and like the other uh, the, when they had the Cepeda against uh, um, uh, Castaneda, it was supposed to be Cepeda against Ivan Branchik, so right. it would have been he pulled out for injury. And uh, so, I, yeah, I just think it's good the boxing's back. Yeah, and they, they, they they've had some bad luck too. They really they have, have they've a had, couple. They've of had them. Corona hit. They've had fighters fall out. Yeah. So not everything has been what it was supposed to be. But that's the nature when you run a lot of shows and they're running two or three a week. Those things happen. Yeah, and then, and because of the circumstances now, it's difficult. So as we wrap up, and you're gonna be, we're gonna be coming back very soon for for Showbox and for uh, the Showtime Championship Series. Uh, it will be interesting. This is probably the longest period of time. It is the longest period of time I have not announced a boxing match, and I'm probably the same for you. I would sure. think over these last. Uh, years, it's been kind of weird to be sidelined for this period of time like it has been for everybody else, right? Very strange. Very, very strange. You know, you get in a rhythm. I'm sure 
your experiences are used to work every week for ESPN so often. Yeah. When you're in a rhythm and you do it a lot, it's fun. It's always fun, but you do it better. And when you do a show, you know, I'm worried that I'm not going to know what to do with the microphone at the next show. What, what is that round glass thing in front of my face? Am I supposed to look at that? I, I, you know, it's, it's all going to be new. So give us, to the fans out there, give us one to get used to it, to warm up, and then judge us again. We're like top rank. We need, it. We need a show to kind of, you know, get back. So, yeah, we Maybe make we sure we practice show. what we're supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I, I'm pretty sure we will at some point remember, though. That's, that's the good I part. Hope, I, I hope so. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure we will. Um, you are, uh, boxing was off to a very good start, a pretty good start in uh, 2020. Um, we're anticipating later in the year, uh, and, and even even as we wrap up, and the, I think there'll be some good matches on the, on the horizon in the last quarter of the year. If boxing can have a decent quarter uh, of the year, do you think that will placate fans uh, and make them feel like, okay, the, you know, the, the sport is, is, is back to where it was? Because the year before that was a little bit the – the prior year of boxing, I guess 2018 was fantastic. 2019 was pretty good, but um, not as good. And it, the sport started off pretty well in 2020. Do you think that a good last quarter will kind of placate the fans and everybody and say, okay, all right, we're, we're back on some kind of solid footing. Well, you know, one, one way of looking at that, Al, is that this delay that we've had, this four, five, six-month delay, whatever it turns out to be, has given the powers that be in boxing a chance to re-examine how things are done. You know, top rank, to their credit, has brought in fighters from other promoters right. to Las Vegas for their shows. Granted, it's not the highest level, but they've done that. Maybe this is the kind of thinking, you know, and maybe out of necessity, promoters and networks will work together more, which would be good. We'd get a lot more of the fights we want. But, you know, not to be Debbie Downer here, but we don't know where this virus is going either. It's, no. You know, it's, it, it's right. going to affect boxing and every other sport just as it did three, four months ago. So we've got to kind of keep our fingers crossed and, you know, wear masks and hope that in the next couple of months things get a little better. And then, then we'll have more freedom to get back to what we, what we love. But boxing is always going to be around, not going anywhere, yeah. because in its essence, it's a unique sport that's just tremendous. And when it's done right, there's nothing like it. Yeah, that's very well put, as always. Um, at, before I let you go, I want to tell people uh, that S Steve is also one of the great uh, uh, aficionados of sports betting. And you... Uh, uh, you, I, I believe, I think I once saw you bet somebody on whether a fly will fly off of the table as we were eating <laughs> breakfast. There were two flies, and you said, which one is going to, you know, did I, did I win leave the bet? table first? Did I win that bet? Pardon? Did I win that bet? I believe you did, yes. I'm, okay. I'm pretty sure you won that one. Uh, yeah. you, you, love, you, you, of course, are a devotee of all sports, and uh, you are the person that I always – I love uh, getting together with you because uh, while I am interested in sports gaming, I'm, I'm, I'm not even close to, to the level you're at. And uh, you, uh, you are so into it and you really love it. It's kind of like a, a, sec, a, a big hobby to you, isn't it? It's a hobby and it's a hobby that costs me money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all hobbies do, right? I mean, exactly. I rode That's horses for 25 years. It cost me a whole bunch of money. You at least have a chance to win back some of your money. And, and you know, if it were golf, golf would cost me money. So whatever right. it is, it's, right. I, I don't pretend that I beat the bookies. Nobody beats the bookies. The yeah. funny thing, though, about it, Al, is that the one sport I almost never bet is boxing. And the reason well, for I that is very that. simple. I would, well, I, would first of all, I, would, I would never bet a, a fight I was working. That goes yes. without saying. But when I lose a boxing bet, I feel really stupid. Like I'm supposed to know a little more than that. If I lose a football game bet or a basketball game bet, well, who the, who the hell am I? I'm just a guy yeah. taking yeah. one side so the game's a little more interesting. With boxing, I hate to be wrong. Yeah, no, losing a bet in boxing. I'm going to make a, uh, an addition here. I have only bet on two fights that I announced because I agree it's a bad idea. This was a long time ago, but I did break the rule twice. I bet on Gene Hatcher to beat Johnny Bumpus. I was oh, nice that on a, pick. Yeah, and, and he was an underdog, of course. And the, Johnny Bumpus was winning uh, uh, 
was winning the fight all the way through. And uh, I, it was on my mind a little bit. I have to say, I think I called the fight fairly, you know, and everything. But, but I, in the back of my mind, it was like, ooh, you know. And then G Dean Hatcher came back and knocked him out. And uh, the other fight, I, well, I actually didn't, didn't cover this fight. But this was, I've only been on maybe four or five boxing matches in my life. The other one was I bet on Jerry Cooney against George Foreman. And I'll tell you okay. why I did that. Because Gil Clancy, I'd been talking to him all during training camp, and he said, Jerry Cooney's going to land uh, uh, left hooks on this guy. And, and, and Gil always had a thing about the, uh, George Foreman. That George was great, but somebody with a tremendous left hook who was taller, who could get that punch to him, had a chance to beat him. And, of course, that defined Jerry Cooney, and Gil was training uh, Jerry Cooney. And I talked to him throughout the training game, and he had me so convinced. And sure enough, in round one, Jerry Cooney hurt Foreman badly with the left hook. And Foreman later, George later, told me that was maybe the hardest he's ever been hit. Yeah. And he, I had to go to work on him, and he knocked out Jerry Cooney. So I was an idiot. <laughs> yeah, there's never anything quite as humbling as seeing the guy you bet on on the floor. It's yeah. happened to me, too. But every once in a while, you get lucky. My favorite quick story I bet on Michael Spinks to beat Larry Holmes in the rematch. Oh, I won that bet. Yeah. But Michael Spinks didn't win that fight. I'm sorry. No, no. They gave him the decision, but he didn't win the fight. So every once in a while, you get lucky, and you never have to give the money back when you do get lucky. So that's a good Right. Fight. That's right. And that's the thing about boxing and tricky about betting boxing. You are, if the fight goes into the hands of the judges, you don't always know if. Uh, but in that case, you, you benefited from it for sure. Exactly. Which, which is good. Steve, uh, what a delight to visit with you. I, uh, I like everybody on the planet, I appreciate your work. I, I'm uh, very, very uh, lucky to be your friend and uh, to have known you all over all these years. And I can tell the people that are watching this that there is no better guy in the planet. And I think no better uh, ambassador for the sport and no one in this, very few people in the sport who... Uh, who have a universal respect, not uh, as you do. Of course, you, you know, you're going to be saying things during broadcasts and writing things that maybe as somebody's going to disagree with, but I think everybody respects uh, the way you go about it. And I'm guessing that you've, you decided early on that you were going to treat everybody with the proper respect. And that is what would ultimately get you past someone disagreeing with you. Well, you can't be shy about your opinions when, they, when they're called for. But I think it's all how you present those opinions. Yeah. And, you know, if you do them in a, in a guided way. And, you know, like you, I have 40 years of, of hopefully respect having been built. And that helps when, when somebody gets angry at you. So, but, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of and, and I really mean this, Alan, I've said it to you before, a lot of the course that my career has taken has followed yours in many ways starting out as writers, become yeah. broadcasters. And you're somebody I've, I've really depended on a lot to, to be a compass and point me in the right direction. And when I grow up, I want to be just like Al Bernstein. <laughs> Who does not, really, when you think about it? Um, <laughs> and by the way, you're lucky I'm talking to you at all. Pardon? Because you had, you had Barry on before you had me on. I did. Yeah, I did have Barry Which, before I had you. And, and when would you like Unforgivable. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's true. That's absolutely true. You you hit on it. You know, I, I was um, kind of made that transition. I was one of the first ones to make that transition. And then it you carried out, you know, after that, then you really became the guy that was known best for that because you were doing you did more in the literary world than I boxing literary world than I did. But uh, it, it was a transition that um, that wasn't a norm, you know, normally it would be, it was trainers and it was sometimes boxers and whoever they could get. Um, but then it became acceptable to, you know, Rich Murata followed in our, our foot with us and uh, Dave, Dave on Tempo and others. And it became, uh, a, like now we have people like uh, Chris Mannix and Merchant, Larry Merchant obviously did it. He was a writer with the, uh, sure. uh, in the Philadelphia papers and all the rest, but, uh, but it became a, uh, kind of a, a, a way of doing business for, for boxing people. And I think part of it was they, they, they thought that people that had written and covered can tell the stories properly. Yeah, well, you, you difference between me and you at Showtime is that you were an established broadcaster when you came to Showtime, award-winning yeah, and everything else. 
and America knew you from all those years doing weekly shows on ESPN. For me, it was a little different. I, I had right. Jay Larkin behind me, and Jay believed in me, and I did a couple of Showtime shows in the early 90s, and I stunk. And Jay believed in me, <laughs> and 10 years later, when Showbox came around, he gave me another chance, and maybe I was a little more ready, whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I, can, I can really thank Jay and Gordon Hall for, uh, for the TV career I have. Yeah, the great, the, you've referenced Gordon Hall a number of times in this interview. He is the executive producer of, uh, of Showbox. And one of the nicest, greatest, Barry was on the podcast and he talked about what a great, great guy he was and, or is, uh, and, and, uh, and has always been. And, um, uh, and your team on uh, Showbox with uh, um, uh, your, your great director and producer and also uh, your teammates uh, in front of the camera. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous family. Well, it's, it's very unusual in TV for a 20 year show to keep the same talent in my case, producer in Rich Gawne's case, director in Rick Phillips's case and executive producer in Gordon Hall's case. That's very unusual. So obviously we're very tight. Obviously we love each other at this point. We're all family. And I hope that reflects on the show. It does. And you, and I've said this a lot, uh, that listening to Barry and you and Raul Marquez uh, do the fights is a great listen. And I think you guys have figured out, it's always hard to figure out a three-man booth in any sport. Now they're more the norm. Uh, but two men is obviously a little easier because there's only two voices, but three is more. And you guys have figured out the logistics of that, I think, as well as any three-man booth that there's been. And it's not an easy task, is it? Yeah, no, it's not. And it's, it's been, it's hard to believe, but it's been eight years now that, that Raul wow. and Barry and I are working together, almost as long as I worked with Nick. Yeah. And let's not forget, in between Nick and Barry, I did some shows with this funny, uh, funny sounding guy from Chicago named Al Bernstein. <laughs> and boy, I, did we have fun. I yes. think we did maybe, what, would you say, four or five shows together? Yeah, we did about four or five shows. Uh, and, and overall, yeah, that's probably what I've done. Dropped into Showbox occasionally and done play-by-play -play with you. And I'll tell you what, very enjoyable. And you and I have had the pleasure of working on some pay-per-view shows together as well. We did a fight, you and I did a fight that remains one of the most exciting uh, I think I've ever been involved in with Juan Manuel Lopez. Yes. And, uh, who was the fighter from Philly? Um, uh, it was uh, Rogers Matagua. Rogers Matagua, yes. And uh, it was wildly exciting. Uh, and if you ever see, I couldn't believe that Juan Manuel Lopez, who was hurt so badly in round 14, yes. staggered around the ring being destroyed in round 15 and somehow made it to the end of the fight. And you know, I'll tell a very quick story. <laughs> God bless Bob Arum. We both know him a long time. <laughs> this was so, funny, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm in the ring interviewing the winner, Juan Lopez, and Bob is over his shoulder, as the promoter often is during these interviews. And Bob, for whatever reason, didn't want to hear about a rematch. The, the fight had been fantastic. The yeah. end had been dramatic. So I say to, to Juan Ma, through an interpreter, what do you think about a rematch? And Aram jumps in looks at me and goes, knowing damn well that most of my income is coming from Showtime. And he goes, if there's a rematch, it'll be on the best broadcast network in boxing, HBO. And I felt like about, I felt like I was, you know, worth about a nickel. And he obviously <laughs> did it to humiliate and embarrass me and he was successful. <laughs> oh, that was, I remember that. I, I remember sitting at ringside and I'm like, oh, ouch, you know, it's like, <laughs> I could, Feel the, you know, feel the heat. That was, that was very funny. That was funny. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining me for this. And uh, if you're unlucky, I'll be calling on you again to appear on this podcast. As My we pleasure. Get back in uh, the uh, thick of boxing, and there's more actual boxing to talk about. Uh, we're looking forward to the return of the sport and the return of you on Showbox and with us on uh, Showtime Championship Boxing as well. Thank you so much, Al. It's always a pleasure anytime. All right. Take care, Steve. So that was my discussion with Steve Farhood. And Tripp, if you look across the landscape of boxing, it will be pretty hard to find anyone universally as well liked or respected uh, as Steve Farhood. And interestingly enough, he started as a writer as well. He, he started and all of a sudden is becoming a TV guy. And you're 100% right. I've never heard a bad word said about him. And in boxing, that's amazing. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a comp- broadcasting's a competitive business. Boxing is any sport is, and so yeah, it's it's not it's not easy to navigate that. And the interesting thing about him is, though, he is not uh, milk toast. You know, he has opinions. Uh, he's very specific in what he says, and he will speak his mind. So, ironically, he's not well liked just because he goes along to get along. He, he, you know, he has his opinions and he's a, a very a truth teller in the sport as well. So great interview with him. I really enjoyed talking to him. And, um, and the other thing that I enjoy, well, there are actually more than two things, um, but of the two other things I enjoy, uh, in addition to that, are answering the questions that our, uh, our audience sends to us. And we got some good ones on Twitter, um, this week. And I should remind you all that you can send questions uh, at Al Bernstein on Twitter and we endeavor to answer them. Great. The first question comes from uh, Trip Mitchell. Who are the biggest jerks in sports broadcasting? Go ahead oh and my that. God. You're, you're going to do that. You would do that to me, wouldn't you, Trip? <laughs> I you thought, I don't I introduce you every week on this show as my friend, my pal, my buddy? <laughs> and look what you want to do. You're, you're anxious to, to derail my career, aren't you? I, I had a guy I was working with one time who was a total jerk and we were having tech issues and he was complaining and I never let him know that this was all going back to the truck and that he was oh. complaining about everyone. I sank this guy. I, you know, sometimes yeah. you got to do it. So. Yeah, no, there are, you know, I will say this. Let me say this though. I'm going to say that the percentage of people I have worked with both in front of and behind the camera in broadcasting that is that are not easy to deal with and that are difficult is not a large number. You know, for the most part, most, by far, most of the people that I've had the privilege to work with in broadcasting have been cooperative, uh, want the, the endeavor you're in to succeed, not to fail. Uh, they're, they're team players. So most people are in that category. And uh, and as I say, that applies to the to people in front of the camera, the announcers that have worked with me, plus, um, you know, those that are behind the camera uh, doing production. Uh, there are a few exceptions, we will say, though I will not name them. But uh, for the most part, everybody's been nice. Well, and that is so true. And you're you're out there to put on a great broadcast. And it's a it's really just not to get inside baseball, but it's so much fun to show up the weekend of a fight and go through the whole process. And when it's over, it is a great feeling, isn't it? It really is. And, and I think, you know, it's like, it's like putting on a, a, a production of, of like a play, you know, all the plays are long running, although not always, but for people that have, let's say, a limited uh, run of a, of a theater production, it's very similar to that because you've come together and over about a four day, three or four day period, you work beforehand and on the night of the show to to make it happen and you you hopefully get a chance to walk away from it feeling like uh it was a good show maybe in a future show we'll get a chance to talk to you about what it's like on a big fight weekend what your responsibilities the meetings we should do that and it's a very just good idea. Our, we could go through the whole process yeah so it's a lot of fun so we've got a serious question right off the bat what do you think of <laughs> broner as a rapper <laughs> So what do I, I think of it, you for, for hip hop? What know, do I think of Adrian Broner as a rapper? Is the question. Yeah. All right, that's a good one to begin with. That's that's almost as fraught with with danger as the one you asked me about. Who are the people that you know are jerks? <laughs> um, you know, because you may not you may not have noticed, but occasionally there will be uh, flare ups in the uh, in the social media world as it relates to Adrian Broner and myself. Um, so okay. I think I can say with a great deal of assurity, though I am uh, involved in the music world uh, as a performer and somebody that is involved with it, it's just barely possible that uh, the hip hop genre isn't the one on which I am the strongest in terms of knowledge. <laughs> just to, I'm just, you know, I think I can safely say that. However, uh, I have many people around me who are, you know, I, I, when I when we did the um, the interview with Stephen Espinosa, I talked about the fact that Brian Custer, who we had as a guest on this show, who hosts uh, the show, Paulie Malinaji and Mauro Ronaldo, and I'm sitting up at that table uh, and we're getting ready for the show. I can tell the people out there 
that one of the topics that dominates the conversation is hip hop. They, all three of them are huge fans of hip hop. And, uh, and I try to learn, I listen, and uh, occasionally I'll have something to contribute, you know. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. was a rapper, wasn't he? No, 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 no sorry. I'm correct about sorry. that, right? Uh, <laughs> but so sometimes I will actually participate. Um, but they are very involved. Now, I polled them and did not get a, an opinion of Adrian Broner as a rapper because, I hate to say it, in several cases, they were not aware of all of the body of his work. Uh, I... <laughs> When we got this question, I did go on uh, the internet and I did listen to a number of uh, of his songs. Uh, and he's got a new, a relatively new uh, CD uh, out or album, however, uh, thirty three EP, an EP um, it, with uh, uh, called "Still Adjusting to Fame," which I thought was a fascinating topic. And I did listen, and um, to my limited. Uh, ear, I could not tell how, and I asked a bunch of different people I know if there was someone you could compare Adrian Broner to in the rap world. And and on, on this album, he was supposed to have Meek Mill and Rick Ross and some other famous folks involved in this album, but I don't think that worked out. Um, so I don't know who I can compare him to. Uh, so let me just say this, and, and let's see if this gets me off the hook. In terms of all the rappers I listen to, Adrian Broner is in the top 10. You, if, if Trump had half the diplomacy that you do, oh, who knows? But there you go. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm auditioning for my spot as the UN, UN ambassador. So real quick, just on that subject, did you, were you at the Tyson fight the night that Tupac was, was shot? Just outside the MGM. Was that was that the night of the ear biting? No, that was. Um, it was not the Holyfield fight, but oh, it was a Tyson fight. Uh, no, um, I no, I, I don't believe I was there. Um, and 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 so I didn't. Yeah, that was a fight that I wasn't at. I was somewhere else, do, uh, actually doing boxing at, the night before or something, and I didn't get back for it. So yeah, that was a famous a famous night in which the world of hip hop and rap collided very much with boxing. And it, they are two worlds that often do collide. You know, there are people involved in, in uh, hip hop that are involved in boxing, like 50 Cent and, uh, and other people. It, so it, seeing the celebrities at a big time fight in Vegas on those Saturday nights is priceless. And, it, you know, you have the best seat in the house. So it's, it's, it's fun. And, and it's just more characters at a, championship fight in Vegas than anywhere else in the world. Oh, it's a fascinating uh, uh, cast. Yeah, it really is on every, on every level. So, and, and many of them are hip hop artists who are there. And, uh, and I, I've had a chance, you know, over the time, I, yeah, I've had a chance to meet and talk to a lot of them and they're all big boxing fans and, you know, uh, and, and we've had a lot of fun conversations with, uh, with many, you know, hip hop artists. So, um, maybe maybe what I need to do is figure out a way to do a duet with, and maybe this would be the way of really bonding the two of us. After uh, you know, even though he's had difficulties with me, maybe maybe we I should find a way to do a duet with Adrian Broner, in which uh, I you know oftentimes right on on hip hop records, there's somebody doing the singing, somebody doing the rapping. And, uh, you know, so I, I, maybe I'm going to pitch that. I'll get somebody to pitch that and we'll see how that flies. Blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Next well, question. This is, well, this what is non-hip-hop questions do we have? <laughs> it's MK61. Do you think certain fighters that wait multiple years to challenge themselves with a tough fight hurts them in the long run when they do get a tough opponent? Example, it's been almost four years since Jamal has fought anyone relevant, and I would think it hurts his going to hurt his chance against Canelo. Yeah, he's referring to Jamal Charlo, who, of course, one of the Charlo brothers, who is now a, now in the middleweight division, and there's been talk of him fighting in a major fight. They're trying the Canelo fight is probably not something that's in his immediate future, but uh, just talk of him fighting Divrachenko, uh and and 
what he referred to there uh, was the last big name fight that Jamal Charlo had <clears throat> was when he uh, beat Julian Williams, J-Rock, who of course we had as a guest on our show uh, just recently. And, uh, and since that time, that was in 2016, his competition has been more limited, although the only caveat I would put on what that uh, our questioner said is, in that time, uh, while he didn't fight any A-level fighters, he did fight Matt Karabov, and who is a, a very, very good fighter. And, and that was a, a very competitive and tough fight for Jamal Charles. So he did have that competition. I, most of the trainers I talk to believe that if you have an extended period where you are not fighting competition, at least up to a certain level, it will hurt you when you go into a big fight. That you want to take in some momentum of having fought against a better competition. Now, I'll give you an example of a fight, a historical example of a fighter who I believe hurt his chances going into a very major fight by his management, and I guess he as well, although I, I think he would have been happy to fight other people, but was kind of guided by his management. They had limited opposition for him leading into the fight. And the example I'm using is Jerry Cooney when he fought Larry Holmes. Leading into that fight, Jerry Cooney had been, I think it's safe to say, his management was overprotective of him. Jerry Cooney was a good fighter uh, with a lot of power. And they were overly protective. And here were the three fights leading into the Larry Holmes fight. He fought three aging heavyweights who were, who if you fought them in their prime, it, this would have been fantastic, but he didn't. Jimmy Young, Ron Lyle, and Kenny Norton. Well, he won by knockout in all three of those fights, but those gentlemen were in their late 30s. They were, you know, all three well past their prime. And they weren't competitive. And those were the fights that he had going into his fight with Larry Holmes. Now, he went 13 rounds with Larry Holmes and had some very good moments in that fight. Portions of that fight were very competitive. And Jerry Cooney was trained well for that fight. He was motivated, and he put forth a really, really good effort. I would subscribe to the theory that had they put him in with better competition leading up to it, I'm not saying he would have beaten Larry Holmes, but I believe he would have given himself a much better chance in the fight. Um, but I believe fighting that level of competition, and again, all three of those men, terrific fighters, but just you know, past their prime, had he been in against better competition, I think he would have performed even better against Larry Holmes. Um, and so, so there is something to, to the idea that you should fight better competition. The better competition you fight continually, the more likely you are to move into a big fight and be effective. You know, what we should talk about in a future show is sparring partners and how important that is to getting a fighter ready. And there are certain sparring partners who go in will emulate you know, if it's Southpaw, whatever, they, they will go and try to emulate the fighter you're fighting. But that's fascinating stuff. That's true. And selecting those starring, sparring partners is uh, important. And uh, not only, uh, as you said, simulating the style of your opponent, but also having someone that will give a fighter the kind of work that they need to, to have. So, yeah, preparation is key. Okay. And then real quick, just uh, you were saying something about 13th round on the Larry Holmes fight. When, it, when fights went from 15 to 12, were you in favor of that? How did you feel at yeah, the time? Yeah, you mean from 12 to 15, right. Or 15 um, rounds down to 12 yeah. rounds. Um, yeah. You know, or 15 to 12, I'm sorry. You, you said yeah. it the right way. I, I, I heard you wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it wasn't your speaking, it was my hearing. But, um, I, you know, probably from anything that's going to be beneficial to the safety of boxers, it's pretty hard to say you're against that. Uh, and 15 rounds is a long time to go in a boxing match. Um, however, having said that, uh, many fighters that I talk to in boxers, especially the boxers from the past, they talk about the fact that they thought that was, quote, unquote, separating the men from the boys. And there were a number of fights that, uh, you know, we've had 12-rounders where somebody's coming on, and if you had those extra three rounds, the outcome could be different. There are also many fights in which the outcome 
of a 15-round fight would have been much different or potentially different it was if it was 12. Now, you don't know because fighters may have fought differently. Uh, an example is the first uh, Tommy Hearns-Sugar Ray Leonard fight. After 12 rounds, Tommy Hearns was leading in that fight. Would he have been leading? No. Had that only been a 12-round fight, would the rally that Ray Leonard eventually put on, would that have happened in round 11 or 12 instead of, you know, when it happened, uh, you know, after uh, in this fight? So, so you know, that's the question. But, uh, I, you know, it, it changed the dynamic of, have you, of, of uh, championship fights. There's no question about that. And, uh, and we, you know, now they feel like that has enhanced the safety for fighters. But there were many, many great fights that, you know, were decided in, in the rounds after the 12th round, either by knockout or by uh, decision. I mean, we talked on this show about the, uh, the Larry Holmes-Kenny Norton fight, which went 15 rounds, and how that 15th round was fought. Uh, you know, and it was pivotal. It was the whole fight depended on that round. And here were these two men who had fought a very, very, uh, you know, uh, volume, punch volume filled fight with a lot of uh, activity. And here they were in round number 15, uh, creating this magical round and uh, with the fight on the line. So now we see that often around 12, but it you know, when it's the 15th round, it's even more dramatic. Any chance that fight will actually, in terms of fighter safety, go down to nine or 10 rounds? No, I don't think so. I think 12 is where it's going to, where it's going to stay. Okay. And this very interesting kind of an inside boxing from the unstable general, I believe. Al, what is the process for a non-boxing state, one that doesn't hold big time fights like Nevada, New York, New Jersey, and California? How do these other states and the sanctioning bodies find competent, experienced judges and officials to hold legitimate fights? Yeah, that is an interesting question that probably everybody is not, you know, uh, hip to. And one of the ways they do it is that there is a, uh, you know, uh, an association of boxing commissions that uh, these states can go to, uh, states that don't normally hold fights. And some of them, as you pointed out, might not even have a boxing commission uh, or a uh, an athletic commission, which is what they're called, um, to oversee. But they can go to the Association of Boxing uh, Commissions, and then they will help, that consortium will help them bring officials in. And so often, if you see a fight in a, I don't know, someplace like Tennessee or a jurisdiction that doesn't normally have major fights, you often see uh, officials imported from other places and often the association uh, of boxing commissions is involved in that the other group that does that in championship matches of course if if you have a championship fight then the organizing body whether it's the wbc wba or ibf or wbo they would get they would would set get the officials to come and and do the fight but that's just for the championship fight so you would still be left needing officials for the rest of the fights, but there is a, a way to do it. And, and there were times when there was a time when, you know, some of these smaller venue, these venues that weren't used to having boxing didn't really avail themselves of, uh, of officials that were uh, maybe more um, experienced and, and, and quite frankly, better. And you would see some very strange, uh, officiating oh, which is not to suggest that you can't see strange officiating at any fight which we know has happened so um so yeah it's an interesting interesting question to be sure so yeah i was i had an opportunity a couple of years ago uh, a promoter up in salt lake was talking about doing a fight out in wendover and mm -hmm. this guy was shaky and i said i'm shocked that you've got a nevada license because that's a tough license to get and he goes mm -hmm. no so it was at a casino but the, the actual ring was on the Utah side of the parking lot. Oh, I get it. And they okay. ran the power from the casino to a ring. They sold beer and the Nevada side, but the fight was actually done on the Utah side. That was strange, I'll guarantee you. That's intriguing. So that was his way of getting around, uh, having to get the license in Nevada and, and be a promoter there. And he could actually... Oh, uh, that, that's fascinating. That's a great story. And, you know, I'll tell you... The, 
pre, uh, since we're on the topic of dividing lines, we did a fight once in uh, uh, Bristol, Tennessee. And oh, which is right on the Virginia line as well. Exactly. And it goes right through the middle of the town, right? Yeah. And so I can't remember which, whether we were in the Tennessee or the Virginia side, but but I remember them wrangling over which officials were going to do the do the undercard um, because of the fact that you know there was kind of dual, uh, dual jurisdiction going on, uh, which you know was interesting to me. So in a way, it's it's similar to to your story. So, yeah, and frankly, with probably if it was ESPN, two or three of your crew guys got arrested in one side and maybe had extradition issues. And yeah, well, there were a few people during the the 80s and into the 90s um, on that ESPN circuit that were always in danger of getting arrested, yeah. <laughs> As and, well they should have. And it's conceivable I was one of them, so you never know. Um, <laughs> well, this was a fun uh, show, and I would say we covered a lot of territory on this show, um, and uh, and it was a fun one to do, and we really enjoyed uh, visiting with Steve Farhood. We uh, will be back again next week with another fine episode. I want to thank uh, Tripp, of course, for his efforts and Lee for his, uh, his fine producing, and we look forward to seeing you next time.